0: Own it and um, welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live or on our podcast. Thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, again, we have um, invitations to the trunk retreat on the connection table if you guys want to take those to pass them out to friends and neighbors, um, anybody with children or not because we're giving out free tacos, right? Who's not going to come for that? Jeez, right? It's my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. That's I got to put that down right. I'm trying to make up interesting ways to log it, like we were saying, "welcome." Just throw that out to you guys. Some people hate it. Some people love it. You can do what you want with it. <laughs> we are um, in our October sermon series: "Love Your Neighbor." Nick started us off last week with a, with a great message, a challenging message on the greatest commandment. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed it on Facebook Live or our podcast. Amanda and I actually watched it um, on Facebook Live last week because we were in Italy. We were celebrating our five-year anniversary. 10 days, no kids, Rome, Cinque Terre, Florence. It was amazing. It was so good to get away, to enjoy each other, to sleep. To Sabbath, to eat together, to to slow down that internal LA hustle. You know what I'm talking about? To let that just kind of and breathe. It was so good to calm. We had a blast. And while we were there, um, we met up with a friend of ours, Ian Coletti. Uh, we got dinner with him in Rome, and it was on the back end of our trip. It was on the front end of his trip. So we were giving him some suggestions for things to do in Italy. We're saying like, go see the statue of David. Have you seen the statue of David? Oh, my You need to go to Rome just so you can see the statue of... David, Or Florence. You need to go to Florence just so you can see the statue of David. See the statue of David. See St. Peter's. See the Colosseum. When you're in Rome, eat cacio e pepe. When you're in Cinque Terre, you eat pesto. Walk the city you're in as much as you can. We're just throwing suggestions at him. And I believe these are good suggestions. But what we did not tell him was if you don't experience Italy our way, you're not going to have a true Italian experience. That if you don't experience Italy how we did, that your experience of Italy will be less than. That's not what we said. Because the fact is, there might be wrong ways to experience Italy, but there's not a right way to experience Italy. You don't have to see the Statue of David. You don't have to see St. Peter's or the Colosseum. You don't have to eat cacio e pepe in Rome or pesto when you're in Cinque Terre. You don't have to walk. There are other ways to encounter Rome in Florence, and Cinque Terre, right? Other than how we did. And they, they can be equally meaningful and equally life-changing. And I'm just wondering, like, have you ever had someone tell you that if you didn't approach something their way, that it was not really, you, your experience was less than, that you didn't really experience it, that, that if you didn't experience it through their filter or their process, that your experience was a lesser experience? It's kind of patronizing, isn't it? That your experience is less meaningful or just plain wrong because it wasn't like theirs. You ever have someone do that to you with God? To tell you that if you don't experience God how they have, that your experience is less meaningful or just plain wrong. It's patronizing, right? For someone to try to squeeze you into their experience as a way of validating their journey or their way of thinking. And it's ignorant, actually. Because the fact is, there might be wrong ways to experience God, but there's not a right way to experience God. There are, there are more than one way to encounter God than that person's way or that group's way. And they can, they can, there can be multiple ways to have equally meaningful experiences that are life-changing. And while this scenario might be all too, unfortunately, all too familiar and too common in our day, this behavior isn't new. Trying to squeeze another person into my process, through my filter, through my experience. This has been happening for thousands of years. And I want to share with you today how the early church responded to it. Today, I want to preach a sermon entitled, Get Your Circumcisions Here. And I think it needs to be said like like the guy selling cotton candy at the ballgame. Circumcisions, get your circumcisions here. And here's what I hope lands for you today. That your experience of God is not the only way to experience God. And trying to sell your experience may burden someone else's experience of God. This is what I hope, Lance, that your experience of God is not the only way to experience God. And trying to sell your experience might burden someone else's experience of God. So, to unpack this, I want to take you back a couple thousand years. In the New Testament, we read about this guy named Jesus, he was pretty awesome. God takes on flesh in this person. And we read about his birth, we read about his ministry, about his execution, about his resurrection from the dead, and then he leaves his ministry into the hands of his disciples that he's been pouring into. And this part's really important. It all happens within a very Jewish tribal context. And within this tribe, you have a people who lived their entire lives thoroughly observing the Torah, this Jewish law. They were kosher, they observed Sabbath, they honored Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah. They had very specific rules and rites regarding ceremony, regarding worship. It It was a people deeply entrenched in tradition. And then Jesus shows up and he figuratively, literally flips this Jewish table upside down. And he, he filters their rules. He filters their, their observations and writes through a vastly different lens. And we read about him in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then if you keep reading into the next book, the book of Acts, we read about the origins of the church. So, and, and this is where we see that a few followers of, Jesus, followers of Jesus turns into this movement. And today, I want to touch on a couple of these events that happen in Acts because they drastically alter the future of the church. The first thing I want to hit on is, is in Acts chapter 10, we read this story of Peter who gets this, this kind of crazy vision from God, and then he winds up in, in conversation with, these, with a group of Gentiles, which is kind of the Jewish word for non-Jews at the time. And Peter tells them, he's, uh, he's like, you guys know it's against Jewish law for me to visit with Gentiles, right? But God has shown me through this vision that he gave me that I don't have the right to call anyone unclean. And then he shares the gospel with these Gentiles, how how Jesus liberates and heals, and how Jesus was, was executed at the hands of the religious spiritual authorities, how Jesus was raised from the dead, and how he's handed his ministry over to his disciples who were joining him on mission to tell others about his liberating power. And while Peter is speaking The Spirit of God fills these Gentiles, and they begin praising God and speaking in unknown tongues, miraculously speaking in different tongues. And in this moment, Peter's framework for experiencing God implodes on itself. It's like, up to this point, Gentiles encountering God was an oxymoron. There wasn't a file for it. He didn't know what to do with it. But Peter has this very real experience, this genuine thing happened in this moment. And he says, surely... No one should prevent these Gentiles from getting baptized. They just received the Holy Spirit like we did. Let's baptize them with water in the name of Jesus right now. So what we see is is what started as this small Jewish Jesus click begins to spread, and it starts gaining momentum, and it starts reaching beyond this small Jewish tribe. Another important piece, the ancient world at this time was heavily tiered. Tiered. It It was severely hierarchical. It's how the world was ordered. From Everybody knew their place, from Caesar, Caesar all the way down to the bottom. But this Jesus movement explodes, and at its core is this notion that the ladder has been knocked over. That the ranking system has collapsed in on itself. Male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, these labels are now irrelevant regarding how a person approaches God. The Jesus movement is not, it's not a, a doctrinal system. It's not just about beliefs. It's about a new way of ordering the world. Not through coercive military power, through violence, but through sacrificial love. And in the context of, of true and lasting love, no group, no class, no tribe has an advantage over another. This is wild. Jesus, he steps into history and he teaches his followers, ranking people destroys people. He offers a new paradigm. There's one people. It's called humanity. And some scholars argue that this movement offered the first coherent argument for gender equality in human history. No wonder it catches fire. It's liberating. It's it's setting humanity free. You're all human, equal, and beautiful in your own right. You're all sons and daughters of the divine. And in Jesus, none of these distinctions, none of these classifications matter like you think they do. Now, we live in L.A. in 2018, so we might be thinking like, yeah, of course, that's how the world works. That's how it is. Equality is our middle name here. But for first century Jews, this is a radical concept. This is scandalous, and it's so scandalous that it creates some serious tension within the church. Why? Because these newbies are being invited into the movement, but they're not Jewish. The new folk. They don't have our tribal history. They don't live according to the the Torah. They're not kosher. They don't observe Sabbath. They don't know who Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and David are. They've never been introduced to these Jewish rites and rules and ceremonies about cleanliness and worship. They are so far from entrenched in our tradition. But they want in on this Jesus thing. They want in on new life and hope and healing from brokenness and their pain. So here's what happens. This tribal-centric Jewish movement, they start hearing reports that other people are getting allowed in beyond the tribe, that the tribe is inviting in non-Jews into the club, and here's how they respond. All right, others want in? That's fine. But if these people want to become part of the Jesus movement, they need to become Jewish like us. And how do you get jumped into our tribe? Circumcision. Circumcision. All the men need to be circumcised because that's how we know who's in. That's how we've always known who's in and who's out. All the way back to Abraham. This has been a primary marker of identity for us. So you want in? Circumcision. Seriously, this is what they start communicating. You want to join? Cool. Just take the knife. Come and follow Jesus with us. This is the greatest movement on the planet. Just a little slice and you're in. Who sells Christianity that way? Using circumcision. Circumcisions! Get your circumcisions here! I mean, and let's modernize this a little bit. Back then, trying to sell Christianity with circumcision. Today would kind of be like trying to sell Christianity with circumcision. (laughs) If you tell people there is nothing in the world like following Jesus, come join us. But having faith in Jesus is not enough. Following him is not enough. You also need to chop off some of your penis. Who's going to join that club? Who's going to want in? T- 2,000 years ago or today, who's going to raise their hand and say, count me in, I want an annual pass for that? Now, here's the thing. <laughs> some of the Jews realize this. Some of the Jews inside the tribe, there's a group that rises up and says, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to ask them to get circumcised before we allow them to follow Jesus. And then they ask, why would we intentionally make this difficult for them to join the movement? So this tension starts developing inside the tribe. And there's this schism. There's this split that happens within the tribe. And here's what happens. One group doubles down. Tribal narrowness. And the other group responds with radical inclusivity to outsiders. One group rises up and starts building deeper walls, higher walls. They have to become like us if they're going to be one of us. And the other group responds by building bridges. Why would, cre- why would we create barriers to God? Let's stretch out our arms even wider. Let's be even more inclusive. And so what we see in Acts 15 is we read about this special council that gathers to discuss this very dilemma. And one of the founders of the Jesus movement steps up and he says, Hey guys, my opinion, we should not make it difficult for non-Jews who are turning to God. And eventually the council comes to agreement. The gospel is spreading. This is what Jesus wanted this is what Jesus said was going to happen. This is a great thing, but we shouldn't expect everyone who wants to join us to become like us. So what they landed on were a few basic requests of these new folks. They said three things. Avoid sexual immorality, abstain from food polluted by idols, and from the meat of strangled animals. And that's what they tell their new friends. They actually write a letter to them. It says, it, says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us Not to burden you with anything beyond these essentials. Three things we'd love it if you avoid. Otherwise, welcome to the family. This is groundbreaking. It's like like the Matrix when it came out. And everyone was like, dang, I didn't know we could do that. Like this is what's happening inside the Jewish tribe. They're like, dang, I didn't know we could do that. This is an act of incredible sacrificial inclusivity. For these good practicing Jews who've been a part of this tribe their entire lives, they're uncomfortably opening up their gates. It's an act of deep sacrifice because for them, all of the marks of their Jewishness, the Torah, the kosher, clean and unclean, going to the temple, observing Sabbath, these weren't just actions. They weren't just just motions. They were primary identity markers of who they were, their core values of their identity. It wasn't just what they did. This is who they were. This is how we know who we are. We practice these things in community as worship unto God. We are the circumcised. But then they decide to transcend their tribalism. They decide to transcend their experience of God so as not to burden someone else's experience of God. And this is a fork in the road for the future of the church. It's a disruption of of identity deeply for the Jesus movement. And the question they asked themselves is, will we narrow and restrict, or will we open up and include? And the leaders of the first century Jesus movement agreed, we're going the way of inclusion. We're opening up, and we're not going to burden our new friends with our old ways. And they literally used the word burden. These cherished practices and traditions of their culture, they said, we don't want to burden our new friends with all of this stuff. Everything we grew up with, the way we were taught to orient ourselves and the world and our thoughts to God, they tell their new friends, we would never want to burden you with all of this. Here are just a few essentials. Welcome to the family. I can't help but ask, where did the church learn intolerance and prejudice? Where did Christians learn bigotry? Because this is the heart of our ancestors. These are our Christian roots. We're in this series, Love Your Neighbor. Love. It stands at the core of Jesus' message. Love God, love self, love neighbor. It sums up everything he taught, everything he was and he was about. But along the way, portions of the church learned to interpret love your neighbor to mean squeeze them through your experience of God. Along the way, portions of the church have concluded loving neighbor means forcing our identity markers on them. Here's the problem, though. No one has the market cornered on God. Do you guys realize that that when we speak about God, the best we can do is metaphor and story? Our best attempt at understanding God is allegory. No doctrine, no theology, no language comes even close to describing the divine. I love C.S. Lewis. He wrote, he to whom I bow only knows to whom I bow. He's saying, when I show up to God, I have no idea what I'm showing up to. And that being is the only being that knows what I'm showing up to. All of our words, all of our beliefs and doctrines and rituals, they're just reflections of truth. On this side of eternally, we're never going to fully get it right. And that's okay because Jesus never said, he never intended, you must get it Right? what mattered to jesus was honesty and humility in my experience the ones who most profoundly encounter god are usually the ones most comfortable with questions the ones who embrace awe and wonder and mystery mystery you know the word mystery comes from a root which means to hush or close your lips we're not called to have it all figured out we're we're called to wonder We're called to sincere curiosity and adventure in the spiritual. We're called to be teachable. Otherwise, what we do is we we close off our ears to hear only what we want to hear, to confirm what we already believe to be true. And then that and then we try to filter other people through that lens. It's really close-minded. And this is where the church goes south. We plug our ears to new. We emphasize doctrine. We emphasize form instead of inviting people into an authentic encounter of the transforming power of the Spirit of God. Information is not the same thing as transformation. I know a lot of people who've got a bunch up here, and it seems like they haven't done anything here. Even good and correct thinking can get trapped inside my little mind and my, my particular culture and my school of thought, which can be helpful, but it can also be very harmful to others. We're called to embrace mystery, to be humble about our own opinions and our perspectives. We're called to accept that all of our knowing must be coupled with knowing that I do not know. <laughs> that's, my, that's been my experience of God and spirituality. Every time my, my understanding grows, everything that was possible goes further. So it seems like I understand less and less in the, in the big picture. We have, to, we have to hold loosely everything that we know. Otherwise, we end up squeezing others through our experience of God, which might be a great one, but it might just be our experience. And I don't, I don't want to bash tribalism here. Belonging to a group is a wonderful thing. Studies are now showing we're softwired for sociability, for attachment, for companionship that it's our most basic human drive to belong. Do I have a tribe? I mean, that's like biologically put into us. And social psychologists are going as far as saying, this isn't merely just about enjoying life. Belonging actually affects survival. You back to, go back to hunting and gathering days. If you don't belong to a tribe, you likely don't survive. You need others to hunt. You need to divide labor and there's safety in numbers. We have this deep innate biological necessity to belong, and I'd argue even today, generally, people who don't have some sort of tribe to do life with don't do life very well. So one of the, the beauties of the church is, is to belong to a community, knowing my life is going to be enriched because of those people that are sitting next to me and walking with me, and that I can contribute in some helpful way to benefit others in this group as well. Community is beautiful. It's what God calls us to. And when it's done right, community has has elements of the divine just laced through it because God is community. Tribalism is a gift. But where we get in trouble is when tribe closes its walls. And the first century church picked up on this. So they decided to kick down their walls. Why? Because they remembered how Jesus treated people. They remembered how Jesus interacted with people who weren't in. How Jesus treated people who didn't wear the right uniform or wear wear the right face paint. I love reading about Jesus in the New Testament. We repeatedly see him in relationship with, in intimacy with, with people who aren't in the tribe. Who were previously never allowed in. He affirms the goodness of humanity. He affirms people waking up and evolving and growing wherever he finds them. And he, he just pushes back against the system. Jewish men weren't supposed to interact with women. They weren't supposed to, to befriend Roman centurions or demon-possessed or unclean or play with children. But Jesus isn't interested in our tiny games. He's interested in shared humanity. That we're human before we're all these other labels and categories that we've cooked up to divide ourselves. Labels... Are, are, they're a thin experience of humanity, and ultimately, they mean nothing for how a person actually lives their life. I've seen so many people over the years who've called themselves Christians that live their life nothing like Christ. Nothing in a way that actually represents who he is. And I've seen people who would never wear a Christian label, yet exemplify so radically the heart of Jesus in their character, and their relationships, and their behaviors labels and categories just don't suffice. And this is why Jesus is so compelling to me. He loved letting people in who were previously told they're not allowed in, that they didn't make the cut. And he didn't try to force everyone into one standardized experience of God. His message was that, like what Doc was saying, they're accepted no matter what tribe they belong to, no no matter where they consider themselves accepted, they're part of the family of God. One, one time he was preaching and Jesus said, God causes the sun to, to rise on the evil and the good. He, causes the, he sends the rain on to the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, that just, that just cuts through all the religious crap. God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. People who appear to not deserve it. People who appear awesome people who who appear so utterly undeserving, people on your team and people on every other team. This is a call beyond a tribal God. This is a call beyond our small experience of God to a God who invites all, who accepts all, who loves all. And the first century church got this because this is what Jesus invited them into. And this is what Jesus invites us into. I want to boldly proclaim this morning That no one needs to believe what you believe in order to follow Jesus. No one needs to experience God how you did or you do in order to have an authentic encounter with God. Your way to follow Jesus is not the way to follow Jesus. Your path may have been critical for you, but that doesn't mean it will be critical for anyone else. The core, the heart of the Christian message is an invitation to follow Jesus. And following Jesus isn't about learning a set of doctrines. It's not about emulating pastors. Following Jesus is about following Jesus. Reading about him in scripture. Developing this intimate and personal relationship with and knowledge of, of Jesus. Of, in our alone time with him. In our time together as the church. And then going and imitating him. That's what following Jesus is. What was Jesus like? He loved his neighbor. He stood up for groups with little to no power. He stood up for groups with no rights, who could not fight for themselves. He spent intimate time with people who hurt his reputation. He accepted people as they were, not as they should have been. And what happened was people were set free because of it. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as he does, not try to squeeze them into our rituals or our experiences of God, not demanding that they accept our ceremonies and our customs, but accepting them as they are and honoring them as children of God. It's a call, down, it's a call to, to bust down our walls in radical inclusivity and watch God set people free through this kind of love. This is the way of Jesus. I want to invite Jackie to come back up and a couple of our leaders for for prayer. You know, I've been a part of the Christian tribe my entire life. And I've become familiar with three types of Christian groups. One I consider to be dysfunctional Christian groups. And here's what they say. Become like us before you belong with us. You need to believe what we believe. You need to behave as we do. Otherwise, you cannot be one of us. Get your circumcisions here. And even if this group has pure motives, this approach hurts people. And another group taking a step past is what I consider impactful. And here's what they say. You belong with us before you become like us. You're one of us far before you believe or you behave as we do. And this is good. And it does impact people, and I think it provides a space for people to encounter God. But then there's this third group that moves beyond impact and moves into transformation. Transformative groups will say this, we'll serve you where you already belong, even if you never become like us. Despite what you believe, despite how you behave, we're going to serve you in your comfort zone rather than ours. You see, the church tends to have this come and get it mentality. It's like ringing the triangle at the farm for the cows to come get it. It's supper time. We've got some Jesus for you. We've got some community for you. Come and get your circumcisions. Ringing the bell. And the failure here is that it resembles little to nothing of the way Jesus did it. We're talking about loving our neighbors this month. And transformative love is how Jesus does it. And how he does it. He says, is, I'm coming to you. Even if you never become like me, I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to serve you because you're a soul formed in the image of God. You bear the mark of our creator. So it's fine. Stay in your comfort zone. I'm going to meet you there, and I'm going to elevate you above myself right there. How do we resist being a church that squeezes people into our customs? How do we resist forcing people into our experiences? We've got to go where they already belong and serve them there. Because getting people into this room on Sunday mornings is not the point. The church, us, we are the church. Getting out of these walls after Sundays and joining Jesus on mission in the city, that is the point. Honoring those who've been dishonored. Caring for those who've been abandoned. Serving those who everyone else considers unservable. Meeting people in their pain Honoring their pain, not just throwing Bible verses at it like a Band-Aid, but honoring people in their, their lost hope and in their hurt. That's the point. That is following Jesus. That is loving our neighbors. And we can decide to be a respectable Christian club that loves each other really well. Or we can choose to be a church on mission that loves each other really well, but also loves our city really well. We get to choose whether we will become an ingrown Christian club or if we want to be part of a transformative movement that joins Jesus in the renewal of our city. And I just simply want to put that before you today. What kind of church do you want to be? Because it's on you. We're going to go into a time of response in worship through song and prayer. And I just want to create space for whatever God's doing in the room right now. Maybe you feel really convicted. Maybe you feel very lost. Maybe you just need a a, a real encounter with God in this moment, and you need a song sung over you, or you want to join in singing, or you need to come stand with a friend and have them pray over you and speak hope and speak life into your heart. We've got two people ready to pray. Jackie's going to sing. If you want to stand and raise your hands, or if you want to get on your knees and lift your hands, or if you want to sit in your chair and just let God meet you however you need right now, I just want to encourage you to be responsive to the work that God is doing in your heart right now. So Jesus, we, we come to you once more thankful, honored that you've chosen us today, honored that you've brought us here into this room to encounter you, And responsive to the work that you're doing in our hearts, God, I pray that you give us wisdom, that you give us discernment to know what it is that you're doing in us, and that you'd give us courage to say yes to that work. We want to be a group of people. We want to be a church family that loves as you do. So fill us, God, with that compassion. Fill us with a sense of urgency to meet meet need, to meet pain, to speak life and hope into it, God. So, Spirit, we give you freedom to do what you want in this room right now. In Jesus' name.